Welcome to the Wheel With It podcast with your host, Devin Weeders. We're a community that is committed to celebrating diversity and inclusion, providing and promoting disability education and awareness, and having fun too. Remember to rate and review the podcast and enjoy the show. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Wheel With It. I am your host, Devin Readers, and y'all, I cannot believe I'm about to say this, but the Aaron Moriarty is here with us on today's episode. Yes, that Aaron Moriarty, CBS News, 48 Hours, all the things that you love to watch, all the true crime stuff you love to watch. She is here to talk to us about one of the most fascinating and infuriating cases that I personally ever heard of, which you hear the details of in the episode, so I'm not going to give too much away here. But this is about a guy named Clawsley Green, and this case is in Florida. It uh, happened in Titusville, Florida. And again, you hear it in the episode, so I'm not going to give too much away. But there is ample evidence, in my opinion, that he was wrongfully convicted. So we are trying to appeal to Ron DeSantis, the governor, um, to get his sentence commuted and to get him out of prison since he has exhausted all of his legal options. Um, So Ron DeSantis, if you're listening to this, um, we did the best we could with the the audio. Uh, It's pretty good, but there might be little glitches in there. So bear with us. And that's for the rest of you too. But just look at the facts of this case um, and see what an exemplary life this man has led, both in and out of prison. And I think you'll be really moved to do something about this case. Um, and this is for, this is not political. Um, I don't care whether you agree with Juan DeSantis' politics or not. Um, this is just a case that I think needs to be looked at. Um, So with that, enjoy the episode with the Aaron Moyard. Hello, my my name is Devin Readers and today we have a super special guest. I cannot believe I'm about to say this, but Aaron Moriarty from CBS News, 48 Hours, your favorite true crime show, or at least my favorite, is here. How are you, Aaron Moriarty? I can't believe I'm going to say that. You are saying it, and I'm fine. And how are you today? I am good. So first of all, tell us about yourself, and we'll go from there. There may be some people out there who aren't as enthusiastic, Devin, but I am a correspondent with CBS News. I'm also a lawyer, and so I cover a lot of legal issues. And and over the last few years, I've started doing more wrongful convictions. I went to law school a long time ago, and at the time I went to law school, there wasn't DNA, and at the time, I don't think any of us realized how often we believe that the American criminal justice system was the best in the world, and it still may be, but it is more valuable than any of us realized until DNA became a real forensic tool. So 
I cover a lot of wrongful convictions and I cover a lot of trials and I work for 48 hours. I work for the show CBS Sunday morning and I work for CBS mornings and I have a podcast. I do a lot. (laughs) Not busy at all. Not busy at all. Uh Not at all. So tell us about how you got into law and journalism and stuff like that. I first just wanted to be a lawyer. For many people my generation, we watched Perry Mason, not the Perry Mason that's now on HBO, which I happen to love, but the original Perry Mason. And for a lot of people in my generation, that show made the law seem both glamorous and important. But Back then, there were limits on how many women were allowed into the law schools. And so I was, we always like joke, my class was one of the, (laughs) one of the early classes that where women were just like everyone else. We joined in larger numbers. We went to law school because we wanted to be lawyers, but we weren't absolutely sure what kind of law we wanted to practice. And I wanted to be a litigator, but I was living in Ohio where I grew up. And there weren't a lot of female lawyers in Ohio. And I was working for a law firm that would rainmake. And for those of you who don't know what rainmake means, you've got to bring in business so that you can make money. And so I thought I would, it sounds crazy, I would do a television show initially so I'd get my name out in Columbus, Ohio. And I fell in love with journalism and I ended up leaving the law firm and going into news. It really, it was just a fluke, but it turned out to be one of the best decisions I ever made because I've watched, because of all the new forensic tools, I've watched how much we have learned about when the system goes wrong, when the system goes right. And I've been able to do a lot of those stories. And I feel I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. So tell me, I know you've won a lot of awards for your journalism. Tell me which one of those means the most to you. Actually, awards don't really mean a lot. It does in the sense that other people then hear and it gives you more credibility when people have heard that you've won so many Emmys or won so many New York Press Awards or something like that. For me, it's the stories that really matter and the stories that have stayed with me the most of the ones that I've worked on longest because they're the most compelling. So one of them is Crosley Green. Another one was Joyce Watkins, a woman in Tennessee who was wrongfully convicted along with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend died in prison and when the Innocence Project agreed to take her case and help her get exonerated, which she eventually was, she refused to do it unless they also helped her boyfriend posthumously get exonerated and how could you not take him with a story like that and in the case of Crosley Green I met him when he was on death row I interviewed him on death row in Florida in 1999 and then I got to watch him walk out of prison in 2020 and now I fear he could be going back to prison because of just the issues with the appellate system those are the stories and the things that mean the most to me not awards Yes. And you were asking me before I prematurely hit the start button, what made me want to do this case and, or talk about this case. And I am a true crime aficionado. My dad is work loss prevention, which is basically, if you don't know what that is, are you familiar with what that is? I'm not. 
it's basically department store security. So you investigate and okay. catch people stealing from the department stores. So he would have to do a lot of like investigative techniques and stuff. So that's how he got into it. And it was what we bonded over. And so I became a lot more into it than he was. He would only watch it here and there, but I would watch 48 hours like every Sunday because it came on at 10 on Saturday. So I don't stay up that way. So I'd record it and watch it. And I first heard about this case and all the consistencies in the ex-girlfriend story, which we'll get to. And I thought, how in the world could somebody convict this man in any country, much less America, and I was just appalled by it. And so I was like, when I saw your CBS Sunday morning update about how the Supreme Court denied to hear it, and the next step was clemency, I was like, I got to do whatever I can to help. It's His case is really not that unusual back from he was convicted in 1990 of murder, and I'll explain the circumstances of it. But back in the late 80s and early 90s, I think the system was very different. I think jurors believed more that when prosecutors brought somebody to trial that they probably had it right. This is also Brevard County, Florida. It was an all-white jury. Crosley Green happens to be a black man who used to sell drugs. He was a small-time person who would sell drugs in Titusville, Florida. He was young. It's just, it was Florida at a different time. And since his case, we've learned that there were other individuals who were wrongfully convicted under similar circumstances, use of the use of questionable dog tracking, the fact that witnesses say that they were pushed to testify. There were three people who testified against Crosley who all recanted later. Those all those kind of circumstances happened in in other cases in Brevard County. But let me give you a little bit of background on Crosley Green's case. There was a young woman who was had a boyfriend and he was seeing another woman. He she was not happy about it. These are not facts that are in dispute. But on this night in April in 1989, he came to pick her up. It was she was watching television. It was late at night. They went to a park. They then, according to her story, a black man approached the truck, robbed her boyfriend, drove them to a citrus grove. This is a truck that is a very difficult truck to drive. It's standard. It's huge. Drove them there. And then the young man, Charles Chip Flynn, had a gun in the truck. And her story is that this black man tied them up and somehow Flynn got the gun and then jumped out of the truck and tried to save her and told her to leave in the truck. And then he got shot by the black guy. She um, does not call the police right away. She goes past a hospital. She goes past her parents' home and she goes to a friend of Chip's and he convinces her to call 911. And I don't know if we can get into this. If we can't, we'll edit this out. But supposedly Chip got the gun from the truck, his gun from the truck with his hands behind his back. Oh, yeah. He shot jumped the guy. out of the truck and shot, supposedly shot at the guy. 
here's the problem with that story is that there's no, she had told deputy afterwards that she thought the assailant had a semi-automatic. There's no evidence at all of that. And in fact, it, the Charles died, Charles Chiflin died from a single gunshot to the chest. And the bullet, unfortunately, was too damaged to say for sure, but it is consistent with the caliber of his own gun. The two first responders, one a deputy sheriff, another sergeant, Brevard County Sheriff's Office, got there. And what are their names? One is Mark Rixey and the other is Diane Clark. And both of them did not believe that there was an assailant at all because they reached Charles and he was still alive. And in fact, he thought he was going to live. He ended up bleeding out because it just took too long for the police to be called and for him to be taken to the hospital. But at the time they said, who shot you? Where'd that person go? And he just kept saying, I just want to go home. I want to go home. Just take me home. He refused to answer those questions. When she was brought back to the scene, she refused to go over and see him. She didn't ask about how he was. There are all these big questions, but be that as it may, she's taken to the police department. Her initial discussion with officers is not recorded. She is taken there around four o'clock in the morning. I should point out, there's also like kind of a hour missing out of the timeline that she says what time they were in the park. But anyway, she gets to the police department around four. She's not recorded till around eight. If and you wanted to get a story straight, you could in that amount of time. And remember, this was a pitch black citrus grove. And she did tell police that she didn't get a good look. They show her a lineup. The lineup is flawed. Crosley Green happens to be put in that lineup. And, and his picture stands out because it's smaller and darker than anybody else. And it's right in the center. And somehow she chooses that. And, and then by the time there's no physical evidence to tie him to it at all, there are fingerprints from everybody on that truck, but not Crosley Green. And I should point out that Crosley Green did not own a vehicle, could not drive standard. And this is a very difficult truck to drive. And if Kim Halleck, the young woman, is telling the truth, this man somehow managed to hold a gun on both Chip and her in the truck, drive the truck, steer it through very rough terrain, and shifted at the same time, which to most of us would require three arms. <laughs> yeah. um, so those are the kinds of questions that people have about this case. And but by the time he went to trial, he's his sister, who was facing drug charges, testified against him, saying that he said he did it. Whatever did it was, she never gave any kind of details. Her boyfriend, who was also facing drug charges, also testified. All the people who testified against him recanted later, but I spoke to some of the jurors years later, and they all said the most damaging evidence is when defendant's own sister testifies against him. And then there was Kim Halleck who testified. Why eventually the things changed for Crosley, it took years, was because both those first responders, Diane Clark and Mark Rixey, did go to the prosecutor prior to trial and say, hey, we think the girl did it. She, and I'm quoting what they said to her, that's yes, in the notes. we're not saying that we think the girl did it. They said it, and the prosecutor put it in his notes. He said, they say 
the girl did it. She had inconsistent stories. She didn't worry. She didn't ask about how he was. And, but that was kept from the defense. And I did a story, my first story aired in 99. And because of that story, the American Bar Association asked a large law firm to take the case. And this team of lawyers, all pro bono, got him off death row and and his death sentence was commuted to life. And then they got the conviction overturned based on the fact that the prosecutor withheld those notes. And then the state of Florida appealed and they won on their appeal. And so his conviction was reinstated. And so, and then he went to his lawyers, went to the Supreme Court asking for them to hear it. And the Supreme Court turned that down two weeks ago. And so now it looks like Crosley Green may go back to prison. So when is the state expected to decide? The state's already asked for him to be sent back. Okay. Yes, the state, it's, If, in fact, they had not appealed and they just had given him a new trial, which is what he wanted, when his conviction was first overturned, the state had two choices. They could have said, "Okay, let's retry him. They had that option. That's what he wanted. He wanted a fair new trial. Instead, they appealed and they did not appeal saying, oh, we've got new evidence that he did it. What they appealed, the basis of their appeal was he didn't exhaust all his state remedies. And what that really means is before you get to federal court, you have to go through state court. And they argued that and the appellate court agreed with them. And so the fact if he goes back to prison and I think there's a very good chance, probably 99 percent chance he's going to go back, it won't be because there's new evidence to show that, in fact, he's guilty. It will be because this man um, who is not highly educated, had attorneys, good attorneys. Somehow, whatever I's weren't dotted and T's weren't crossed, the state remedies were not completely exhausted. And that will be why he goes back. Which is just infuriating when you think about it, because it should be based on evidence. It's well, not. That's what we all feel. But the bottom line is, <laughs> so I think the there's... There are opposing interests, state interests. There's one in getting conviction. That's the whole reason why we have fair trials and it's part of our judicial right. It's part of the amendments. But on the other hand, the state has an interest in having cases end, preserving the integrity of convictions. And these are two opposing goals at times. And so the reason why you have all these rules in appellate courts is to keep everybody from appealing and appealing. And, but unfortunately, sometimes the people who have a real reason to appeal, who may be innocent, um, are then put back in prison. It has nothing to do with guilt or innocence. It has to do with the procedures, what, what you have to do to get to federal court. So tell me, about when you first met Qualsley and his family and what your first impressions were and what your reactions were to his saga and all that stuff. When I first met him, I had no idea. I joined a team of private detectives who were looking at his case, but I spent a lot of time with people who no longer, you know, who are no longer alive, which is really sad. And on my own, I interviewed Chip's dad, Chip Flynn Sr., 
who he was the one who told me about some of the inconsistencies in Kim Halleck's statements. For example, she told police that, um, I'm trying to make sure I have it right, which direction, that Crosley Green or the assailant was and just to be the truck. And just to be clear, this is all from the notes, right? This is, no, this is not from notes. I interviewed Chip Flynn's father. Okay. He's now dead. But when I first started on this story, he was alive and he did not want us relooking at the case, but it was clear to me that he had his questions about whether Crosley had killed his son or not. And he told me, because of my question was, didn't you wonder how could this assailant shift a truck and hold a gun on them and steer at all the same time. And the father said, she told me that she was shifting the truck for him, that he made her. And I said, that's not what she told police. (laughs) And he, you should have seen the blood drain from his face. And he goes, I better not talk. I better not talk. In fact, she told different stories. One of the deputy sheriffs, she said that she was told to tie Chip's hands, but at trial, she told a different story. There were inconsistencies in her story. And let's be honest, the Crosley's defense attorney back then, this was an all-white jury. It was 1990 in Brevard County, Florida. You either, the way the state presented it, she was a victim. She was with her boyfriend when some assailant robbed them and shot him. And so the defense attorney for Crosley didn't want to offend the jury by saying, she's the shooter and she's lying. So he talked around it. But if he had those notes, then he would have been able to bring both Diane Clark and Mark Rixey on the stand and say, why did, why did you think that? What did you think when you first got there? And then it wouldn't have been just him accusing her. He would have had two deputy sheriffs saying that they had questions about whether Crosley was in fact an assailant or whether there was an assailant at all. And that's really what makes this story so difficult. We're used to doing stories where, but remember it was very dark in that, in that orange grove, that citrus grove. So let's just say the state's right. And there was some assailant. She made it very clear early on. She couldn't see anything. She had a really difficult time getting a look at him. She was too scared. Even if the state was right that they're an assailant, although there's no sign of another assailant, then the idea that she could have picked Crosley Green out is very difficult to believe. But what made this story more difficult is that the first responders did not believe there was an assailant at all. That for some reason, whether it was an accident or not, Chip may have been shot by his own gun, by the young woman with him. And and Crosley Green's attorney was too afraid to say that point blank at trial. He insinuated it, but he didn't come right out and say it. And again, that wasn't necessarily the fault of the attorney because you don't want to be seen as blaming a victim. I don't know whether you put it at fault or not. He he could have questioned. Mark Rixey did take the stand, but of course the attorney did not know what he had said to the prosecutor, so he was not cross-examined. I don't I know that there are some people who believe that Crosley's defense attorney did not do everything he should have done to defend. Certainly he could have brought in 
more alibi witnesses. There were people who saw Crosley Green at a party that evening, and he did not bring in all of those witnesses. He did, though, raise in front of the jury that Crosley's sister had been pressured. She was gaining by testifying against her brother. In the end, poor thing, she did not gain at all. They still took away her children. That was the thing. Oh she was my God, I didn't charges. know that. They yeah. still did? Yeah. Did so, she ever get um, them back? Oh yeah, and later on, they're grown now, but yeah, that's, it, you, when you go back and you look at the whole question about, did the dog really track over cement sidewalks to one of Crosley's sister's home and claim that they tracked him to her home? It seems hard to believe. They and never- And tell us about the shoe print, Doug. Well, number one, the shoe prints that they followed, they never found any kind of shoes that match Crosley Green to those shoe prints at all. And if you believe a independent shoe print expert, they were that the actual shoe prints they should have been following went the opposite way out of the park. There were a lot of questions at that trial so that should have been followed up. So if you're not comfortable with answering, we don't have to answer this. And again, I have a lot of editing to do with this podcast. We'll cut this out. But what was your reaction meeting the prosecutor? Like, how did he strike you? All you have to do is if you go back, you can go on Paramount Plus and watch any of my old hours on this and you could judge for yourself. Oh, he admitted to me that today he would never have used that the photo lineup that she supposedly chose Crosley Green out of. He admitted that there are real questions whether it's Crosley or not. He said that. You could, some people say it was him, some people say it's not. I, my reaction, really? You put a man on death row and you're saying to me, some people think he did it. Some people. <laughs> he admitted that they never viewed her as a suspect, never even investigated her as a suspect and seemed shocked when I raised that. And he actually, at one point in the interview said, you got to understand, she grew up in my neighborhood. It was like, so... Yeah, I had, I, I was concerned about the process and whether Crosley Green got a fair trial. I think that when you consider the fact that it would have been nearly, if not impossible for him to drive that truck the way she describes it, the fact that if in fact he did, that he left no evidence, no fingerprints, no nothing, no blood, no fibers in that truck when everybody else seemed to. Years later, not at the trial, years later, the state said they found two hairs that were destroyed in testing. So the defense never got to test them or be part of the testing. But it did not say it was Crosley, but he couldn't be eliminated. It was done by mitochondrial DNA. But the thing is, Crosley's brother had been in that truck many times because it had been owned by a man by the name of Tim Curtis and O'Connor Green, Crosley's brother and Tim were really good friends and O'Connor drove that truck all the time. So the only possible but questionable piece of evidence that one hair that they say cannot eliminate Crosley Green is absolutely the only thing that ties him to this crime with the exception of her word. So how has Crosley's behavior been, one, while he was in prison, and two, now that he's out? I think what really blew me away was over the years, I go into this, I usually, most of my first stories are just right down the middle. Here's the case. 
But over a period of time, the more you report, you do start leaning toward guilt or innocence. And in this case, it just, everything was pointing to innocence. And so at one point I am in a prison in Florida and there is a man standing in the corner just staring at me. And that troubled me because I didn't know, was he recording my interview with Crosley? Who was this man? So I went up to him and I put out my hand and I said, hello, I'm Aaron Moriarty. And he said, and he gave me his name and I'm the assistant warden. And he said, I don't know if you realize this, but I think you should tell your bosses. I thought that was interesting. He said, you need to tell your bosses that this man has no infractions, none. He said, in all the years that I've been in prisons, I've never seen that before. He said, I'm not saying this guy's innocent, but I am saying I've never seen a man without any infractions. And the fact that the assistant warden really wanted me to know that, and then later signed an affidavit supporting Crosley getting out of prison, tells you that those in the system were supporting him. And that meant a lot to me. And that's, that is what I always saw. This is a man who would answer any question. He's warm. He's, he's funny. He's, um, he's very devoted to family. And so when he did get out, he got out on conditional release in, tw in 2020, in March of 2020, actually April, sorry, of 2020. And it was based on the fact that his conviction had been overturned, but the state was appealing it. And so pending appeal and to avoid getting COVID, if you recall, COVID was- I just, recall. <laughs> yes. And it was really going through the prisons. And so they let him go home. And all he's done since then is be with his family and work. He works full time for a company that it's like a manufacturing business. And that boss has said- I'm going to be at a loss if Crosley ends up going back to prison because he's such a great worker. And it's just hard to believe that if this man's a killer, that he could be yeah. such an exemplary citizen, both in prison and outside of prison. And so how is his family doing with all of this? And when is the last time you talked to Crosley? And what's the current update? I talked to Crosley last week. Crosley is... Crosley. He never admits anger or disappointment or even fear. His big concern is he's worried about his family and I don't blame him. His sister and brother are very upset because I should point out that when Crosley, right before Crosley went on trial, they didn't have any evidence, no much evidence against him. And they worried they wouldn't be able to convict him. And they offered him a 10 year plea deal. And he turned it down and his sister can't get over that. His sister keeps saying, I told him to take it. And he said, I can't admit to something I didn't do. And think about that. Crosley has spent more than 32 years incarcerated when he could have been out after 10 or even less than that, probably for good behavior. And now he could go back to the rest of his life. And so it just is. His case, the reason why I think I've stayed on it, besides the fact that he's a man who deserves to have a spotlight on his case, it just, it is a reminder to all of us that we say we want the system to work for everyone, but it doesn't work for everyone. It doesn't work as well for poor people. It doesn't work as well often for Black men. And I think Crosley Green's 
case is an example of that. If his attorneys are correct, this is a case of what, what they call a racial hoax. In 1989, there were a couple cases like this where we commit a crime and they'd say a Black person did it. There was a case, Susan Smith, who killed her two children and said a Black guy did it. And there was a husband in Boston who killed his wife who said a Black guy did it. And in those cases, both of them were, it was quickly found out that they were lying. But in this case, he was convicted. And so it's a difficult case because in order to, if you admit that Crosley's innocent, then you really have to say, then she did it. And that's a very difficult thing for anybody to do. Yeah. Um, and it is. What's the latest update on Kim Howitt? Kim was working. I don't, I could not say exactly today, but she was working for the county, the county clerk's office in Brevard County. And that's uh, ironic. I know she has children and a family in Brevard County and has gone on with her life. She's the only person who has not spoken to me through all these years. Everybody else has. And um, yeah, no, I don't know what she thinks. It is what it is at this point. He's run out of legal options. His only chance now is parole. Parole will be difficult because most parole boards expect people to say, and to show remorse and to say, I'm sorry for what I did. And Crosley's never going to do that because he says he didn't do it. So he's not going to admit to saying he didn't do. And then the only other option is, of course, for the governor to grant him clemency, which could be commutation of sentence. But, but it is Ron DeSantis. And I think a lot of people question whether he's or is expected to run for president, whether he would be willing to do that on a controversial case like this. Um, it's a tough one. And to be honest, I don't get into politics. I don't get into anything like that. But if Ron DeSantis happens to listen to this, I realize it's a long shot. This case, if anything, if any case demands that a reasonable human being, which I think he is, whether you agree with his politics or not, he's a reasonable human being. Look at it. It's this one. This is crazy that this has gone on for this long. And we're not saying it's all about race or anything. We're just asking you to look at it. Uh, my feeling is if, if a reasonable person looked at it, there's no question you would look at, this is a man who was, who has a, now has a sentence 25 years to life. He's already spent much more than that time in prison. He has led an exemplary life in prison and outside of prison that somebody would think if somebody deserved commutation or some kind of clemency, he would be that person. You don't even really have to take another look at the case. And it would just be a fair thing to do. That's up to the governor. And there's no rhyme or reason necessarily on that. So I was watching the latest press conference between Clausley and his defense team. Do they have any meetings planned with the governor's office? Or they said that they were going to do some kind of template that people could use to write the governor? Is there any thing like that in the works. Well, that I'll have to check. I know that the next time that I'm going to probably do something on this will be the end of March because the federal judge who overturned his conviction to begin with in 2018, Judge Dalton, 
did order briefs on both sides to tell him why he should send Crosley back to prison. Now, he doesn't have, I don't think, any legal right to not send him back. So I don't, I think in a way, Judge was just giving Crosley Green another 30 days. But that's when I'll look at it. And that is when I, I will know what the lawyers are hoping people will do and what kind of information they will have for him. And excuse me if this is an ignorant question, but I genuinely want to know, could DeSantis theoretically wipe his criminal record? Yes, but would he? That's a big question. Would yeah, he? Yes. That would be a pardon, though. That would be granting him a pardon. And I don't see that happening. I think that you talk about long shot, that would be a miracle. Yeah, that would be a miracle. But if he could at least get his sentence commuted, that would be huge for him. I think he would be, he's 65 years of age. I think he wants to spend the rest of his life working and being with his family. And I don't think, I don't think it matters to him what the world thinks, whether he has a criminal record, but he does care that people think, I know it matters to him that no one thinks that he committed murder. I don't know how many times he has said to me, I did not kill that young man. I did not kill that young man. And correct me if I'm wrong, his story has stayed relatively consistent for 32 years, correct? Oh, as far as I can tell, absolutely. He's always kept with the same story. Because I've got, I'm the one who just, and every time I do a new hour, I'm always assigned a new producer who has to start from day one. And so each time we do a new hour, we're reinvestigating it. And no, the story has always remained the same. We've never been, I, I kept thinking at some point someone would write and say, you got it wrong, Aaron. You didn't know this, but that's never happened. Yeah, which is crazy after 32 years. I and know. just to be clear, the type of steel that he makes at his job while he's been out is military grade steel. So not only is he working, he's also helping to strengthen the military. They, his boss loves him. And Crosley says he's never been happy work, happier working like this. He loves the fact that he has a job that requires skills and that he is needed. He goes early to work and he stays as late as they need him. And he's so funny. Talk about the definition of hope with Crosley is he bought a motorcycle. He's always wanted to own a motorcycle. He's under house arrest, so he can't ride the motorcycle, but it's sitting there in the right in the driveway because that's his hope that he can someday get on that motorcycle. That to me is the definition of me crazy hope, but but very inspiring at the same time. Yes, I honestly, man on a true crime television show has never seemed so nice. <laughs> I know that's weird to say, but he seems so nice. What I have found from doing, I've done a lot of wrongful convictions, and I'm always amazed that with the exception of one person who was wrongfully convicted, none of them are bitter or angry, or at least they're not expressing anger. They probably feel it, but, um, and I have come to the conclusion that a lot of these individuals have, um, they've got their innocence, the kind of 
protects them. And so they don't see themselves in the environment. They're insulated from the environment they're in by their own innocence and this hope that someday they'll get out. And I had mentioned very early on about Joyce Watkins. That was her, the most, one of the most elegant human beings I've ever met. Um, I don't think you, if you met her today, you'd never guess that she spent 20 something years in prison. She is the same woman she was on the outside, at least. I know she's a different woman inside, but she's as elegant and as ethical and as honest and warm a human being as she was before she went in prison. And I just think she knew that at some point, the craziness of the world would finally listen to her and realize that she did not commit a murder, nor did her boyfriend. And finally, it was the producer and I, a woman by the name of Sari Aviv, who works for Sunday Morning. When we were with Joyce in her house, we felt honored to be allowed in the house because neither one of us had ever gone through hell like Joyce had and come out so graciously. And you you do these stories and you feel honored to be with these individuals. Yeah, it's really, I use this word a lot, but it's really amazing that his family is not resentful. He's not resentful. It's just, I can't imagine. So is there anything else you want to add about the case or about Quasley before we, we get off here? No, but I'm hoping that people will read up on him and follow my reporting because hopefully at some point he's gonna walk out of prison even if he has a conviction for something that he has always said he didn't do that he will go back to his family these stories map i know it's difficult in this day and age when there's inflation and people are worried about how they're going to make ends meet and they're worried about their jobs and they're worried about their health but but there are people who have it worse than really any of us and still end up hanging on to their humanity, their humanity. And I think, I think it's worth following those cases. And what would you say to hypothetically to Governor DeSantis, if you were listening to this? To open your heart and take a look at this case and give this man back his life. I think it has, as you had mentioned earlier, it really has nothing to do with politics. This has to do with humanity and human beings. And I think anyone looking at the facts of this case would say, look, we can't go back in time. We don't know exactly what happened, but this man has paid more than his debt to society, whatever that might be, and he deserves to go home. Yes, and... It was a different time back then, and we've come a long way since then. And in yes. some ways, yes. In, in, in some, some ways, ways yes. Not, yeah. But yeah, I'm not, again, I'm not political, but if the man that a wrong was done to is still alive, I feel like we have a responsibility to right that wrong. I might just be crazy, but that's my thought. Um, so yeah, it's. Tell Clausley I'm thinking of him. Just tell him I'm praying for him. I know he's a man of faith. Is there anything else you want to add about anything? No, but I'll be. I will enjoy. Oh, coming up always. I will enjoy telling Clausley that you gave me this opportunity to talk about his case, and I have another case coming up where 
the man in Missouri was exonerated in February on Valentine's Day. His name's Lamar Johnson. I'm going to do an hour on that for 48 hours where you really see where the system fails us. And it's a pretty interesting case and and involves another man who is shockingly not bitter. And that's coming up as well. Yeah. And if Quasi and I get a chance to talk, which I hope we do, I just want to tell him I'm playing for him and all that stuff. Where can they follow you on social media, Erin? I am on Twitter at EF Moriarty. And I am, it's Erin FM on Instagram. Yes. And a little bit about how this all came to be is once I found out that the Supreme Court had denied it, I'm like, I have to help. I have to help in some way. Let me see if I can talk to Erin. So I went on this random website called Rocket Search, and there were emails out there, and I sent them, and here we are. So thank you for having your email publicly available. I don't know if you can say that on the podcast, but you can look it up. Yeah, I was happy to hear from you. And look, I only have a job because people care about these stories and they want to hear the stories I report. So of course my email's out there. I want it to be out there. That's, that is my job is reporting to all of you. That's, I hope that I'm a voice for people who watch CBS news. That's what I want to be. And, and so, yes, that's why my email's out there. And I'm glad that you reached out. I really am. You are delightful. Thank you so much for doing this. And we will see you guys next episode. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to Wheel With It. You can support the show by visiting our website, wheelwithit.com, following us on social media, and financially supporting us. You can find all those links in the show notes. See you next time.